0: I cannot wait until he calls my name. I've got a, I have got. hope that I have a lot of living left to do. That you and I get to do lots of great things in the name of Jesus. But I am excited to think about the day that he calls my name and I come back. And we gather and he says, well done, good and faithful servants. So if you got a red card when you walked in, would you hold it up so that everybody around you can see it? You should have had a Boy Scout that gave you a card that says... Nine ways. The nine ways to follow Jesus for us at Carterville is a way to think about discipleship that helps make sure that we don't find ourselves just being religious, just going through a bunch of empty rituals. We want to make sure that we belong to Jesus. And we live in a place where everybody might say they're a Christian. We live in the Bible, but we live in Mississippi for crying out loud. Everybody's going to say, yes, I believe in God, yes, I'm a Christian, but maybe they don't have a meaningful relationship with God. Maybe they never gave their life to Christ. How do we know the difference? So what we did, we read the scriptures, and we realized that everybody in the world of Jesus, everybody in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, everybody in those Gospels went to church. They all were religious. They all prayed. They all read their Bible. They all gave their offerings. They all, they all knew who God was. But there's a tremendous difference in the 12 guys and the 72 and the hundreds and the multitudes that leaned in and listened to Jesus. They were very different than the guys who followed the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, or Caiaphas, the man that called for Jesus' execution. So here's what we want to do. When we talk about discipleship, following Jesus, we want to really put ourselves to the test. We want to measure whether we're just religious Or are we really living like Jesus? Are we being changed? So these nine ways follow Jesus. These were nine things that we observed in the Gospels that Jesus taught specifically about to differentiate between his group and other religious people that weren't like him. So today we're going to talk about love. Today we're going to talk about the most powerful thing that God put in our toolbox. So let's turn to to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, we're going to read Verse 34 and following, and we are going to talk about love. And I'm not talking about just like your mom and dad loving each other's scouts. I'm not talking about just, you know, it's Valentine's Day right around the corner. I'm talking about real love. I'm talking about God's love. I'm talking about love that is so powerful that it would cause God the Father to, to come to us in Christ Jesus, that he would die on the cross and send the Holy Spirit to minister to the church. I'm talking about love so powerful that it would cause church members to forgive each other that it would cause people who have long-standing grudges to drop them and heal. I'm talking about a love so powerful that it would transform communities and cultures and churches and cities and schools, not just a pitter-patter in your heart. I'm talking about a choice, a decision that would allow you to love your enemy, to love your neighbor. I'm talking about a kind of love that can radically turn the world upside down and change the rest of your life. Today, I want to ask you really simply, are you... Loving like Jesus loved. And if you're not, are you ready to drop that? To lay that on the altar and walk out of here following Jesus? Are you ready for God to change your heart? To make those dead places come alive so that you will love the way that Jesus loved? Let's read Matthew 22. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All right, so Jesus said the greatest commandment in the entire Bible, of all the things God told people to do, the most important one is that you would love God with everything you are, all of your influence, all of your strength, all of your power, all of your words, that you would love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, that you would love God above every other thing, more than your job, more than money, more than fame, more than power, more than prestige, more than the great outdoors, more than an A on the test. That you would love God more than anything. It's the most powerful commandment. The second one, Jesus said that's just like it, is that we would love each other. No exceptions. That we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And Jesus even pushes that farther. He tells us we have to love our enemies. I said, the greatest commandment in all the Bible is love. So, Scouts. It's Scout Sunday. I thought we would uh, make the sermon a little bit more interesting and memorable. So, I want to tune in. What is the greatest thing in your backpack? Like, when you go camping, what is the best thing that you take? And if I ask all the Scouts, some of them might say, oh, it's my sleeping bag. I hate to be cold at night. Some of them might say, oh, it's my tent because I certainly don't want to be rained on you know, in the middle of the night. That would be miserable for me. But I brought a couple things that I thought were pretty cool that I sometimes take camping with me. So what's the greatest thing that you have when you go camping? I thought I would begin in the beginning. I brought this for multi-reasons. I brought this because this is cool. Like to take an ax on a camp out. I mean, I could be John Bunyan. What kid does not want to get that ax out and split some wood, right? Who doesn't want to chop a tree down? Well, the guy that was standing beside the last guy that cut his foot, you know, probably. So this is a pretty cool thing to have in your backpack, a nice, sharp axe. But you probably are going to have to go to the emergency room. So, Boy Scouts, sorry, you can't take them. Your Scoutmaster can. All right. That would, be, that would be pretty cool for a minute, for a minute. I brought some other things. I thought this is pretty cool. Some of the Scouts already know what it is before I take it out of the box. Does anybody know what this is? Scouts, do you know what this is? Some of you said matches. You're close. You're in the, like, you're in the, right, you're in the right, right ballpark. All right, Boy Scouts, now do you know what this is? Legit. This is a stove. Can you believe that? So a lot of you that have been around a while, you know that backpacking is my favorite hobby. I don't do it much anymore. But, man, I love to go to the mountains backpacking. Everything's got to be small and light. This is a stove. you screw it down to a, a can of isopropyl uh, butane, and it will burn, and you can cook whatever you want to. Isn't that terrific? That's the coolest thing. So there you go stove in your pocket that's right all right I brought something else Boy Scouts can you tell me what this is this is a water filter right I can drink water like from where I don't have to carry in a whole lot of water water's heavy but I can just use a water filter, pump water right out of the stream. I think this one Stephen George gave me. This one, this is a, I'm probably half of the things that I have for camping. Stephen George probably gave me. But this is a, this is a water filter. Now I thought this was cool, right? Watch this, one step up, like the newer version of it. I think it's kind of you know dorky, but it's cool stocking stuffer. Boy Scouts, can you tell me what this is? Oh, it's a life straw. It's basically a water filter where you don't use the water filter. You just stick this in the swamp and suck water out, and it cleans it up, and you can live for days. I, I don't want to drink out of the swamp, but some of you might. So here you are, if you want it. Chandra, later, I don't... Uh, so if you want to drink water out of the creek this afternoon, here it is. I don't know. Those are some pretty cool things you have in your backpacks, pretty cool things to take care If I am understanding Jesus correctly... Then I would say out of all the things I'm going to talk to you guys about at church, you know, about you know, honoring your father and your mother, about you know, being truthful, telling the truth, about your, you know, your personal integrity, about your relationships, it turns out that it seems like love would be the one thing that God wants to make sure that you have packed in your heart. That honestly, and I'm not talking about just some kind of sappy, you know, like butterflies in your stomach, feel good love. But the same kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross to die in our place, that we would love one another enough to serve one another, to sacrifice for each other, to forgive each other, to bear with each other, to be there for each other. And so today I want to talk about the most powerful tool in your toolbox, and that is love. Listen, I I want to show you before I dive off any deeper into the sermon. Look, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And I want to tell you something that God showed me a couple years ago that just blew my mind. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul drops this chapter all about love. We normally read it at weddings, right, where it says, you know, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but always rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. We love the love chapter. But this is what God showed me a few weeks ago. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, the church in Corinth, people are arguing about their spiritual gifts. There's some people that have been given a supernatural knowledge from God. Like they, God's given them great wisdom, they have deep knowledge, they're geniuses, and they are proud of it. There are other people in the church that God's given them the charismatic gift of speaking in tongues. Whether that's like in Acts chapter 2 where they speak and people can understand them in their own language, it doesn't seem that's the case because in 1 Corinthians they say, hey, you got to go one at a time, make sure you have an interpreter. But something was happening where the Holy Spirit was coming over people in the church and they were saying something from God and another person was gifted to interpret it and that was pretty impressive, right? Because those people, they kind of had this special status like, wow, the Spirit speaking through you. Other people in the church had the gift of prophecy, which doesn't just mean they closed their eyes and told the future. It means they had a knack for knowing what God was saying. And a lot of what God's saying, he's already said in the scriptures, like Isaiah the prophet, just take it and preach it and tell the world what God is saying. But these prophets could speak and tell you what God was saying to us. They could take God's word and speak it forth, and they would let us hear God's word. So these are the guys that would get the platforms and the pulpits and the attaboys and the accolades and the spotlights. And so in chapter 12 and chapter 14, Paul is trying to rein them all in because they've gotten into this contest to see which one of them is the most important in the church. Whose gifts are the most special? Whose gifts are the most powerful? Who's the best? And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul basically puts them all in the corner. And I want to show you, essentially, if I'm reading this right, Paul's going to tell you that none of those gifts are nearly as good as the simple gifts and as the often overlooked gift of divine love manifested through the Holy Spirit in a believer's heart who's willing to love the Lord with all their heart, love their neighbor as themselves, all the way down to loving their enemy. In other words, Paul's going to tell you, and I'm going to show you, that love is the most powerful gift in the church. Let's see if that holds up. Chapter 13. In, verse, uh, in chapter 12, verse 31, the last of it, he says, Eagerly desire the greater gifts. And so we go, oh, what, is the, what, what would be the greater gifts, Paul? Then he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm a resounding glong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, he just looked at all the people speaking in tongues and said, look, you guys are just noise and distraction if you don't have the love of God in your heart. Look at the next verse. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I can have the faith that could move mountains but do not have love, I am, what does it say in your Bible? It says, I am nothing. Wow. If I, this is generosity. Look, some of you guys are generous. Keep it up. I love it. Some of you guys are generous. Praise God for that. But look, look at what he says about gener- even generosity. Look, if I give all I possess to the poor, that's radical. And give my body over to the flames, to hardship that I may boast to, as a martyr. But do not have love, I gain what? And then he describes love. and I've already read this part to you. But basically, Paul just told the church in, in Corinth, you can have all these other like impressive gifts that everybody wants. I mean, you can have faith. You can have knowledge. You can be the most generous person in the church. You can fund the whole church. You can be a martyr for Jesus' name, but if God's love is not alive and active in your heart, it's nothing. In the course of following Jesus, it doesn't even measure. Like, it doesn't even raise the scale up to like a one. Look at what he says here, verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. You're not going to need them in heaven. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. You're not going to need them in heaven. Where there is knowledge, it's going to pass away. In heaven, we're all going to know anything. So what? You're not going to teach me anything new. I, I mean, I can learn what I want to learn from God. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the, child, the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only like a dim reflection in a mirror. And then, I believe Paul's saying, then, like when we see Jesus in heaven, then we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I'll be fully known, even now as I am fully known. I shall know fully, even now as I'm fully known. Verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is what? All right, so I asked the Boy Scouts, what's the best thing you could put in your backpack? I got the axe because it's the most dramatic, right? And it'd make you behave. Like if somebody starts to fall asleep, I'll just lean in. (laughs) What's the best thing you put in your backpack? You know, tent, sleeping bag, axes, you know, life straw, drink out of the swamp, whatever. But if I'm reading the New Testament correctly, Jesus says love is the greatest commandment. Paul says love is the greatest spiritual gift. Like in 1 Corinthians 13, it really sounds like if we could have a faith healer in the church that could like heal your illnesses like just you know with a prayer and a touch you know, I, I'm, I'm a little squirrely about that sometimes I think that stuff's for show I believe it's a real gift I just I don't, I don't know that I've seen it many times if we could have a faith healer or if God could just like make me a legitimate reasonable preacher God could raise me up as a prophet or if, or if God would just manifest like spiritual gifts in the church that would blow you away and would make people want to put you on YouTube channels I think Paul's saying that if you had to pick between that those gifts or a church that loved each other divinely like if you really turned your heart over to God and let him teach you to love past all the boundaries we place to like radically love each other to, to stop letting the little roadblocks like grudges or judgmentalism, or arrogance, self-righteousness, broken insecurities we have on the inside that keep us from loving other people well, you know, fear of vulnerability, whatever, whatever. I think Paul's saying that the church should rather have a church filled with people who would love powerfully like Jesus loved than a church that was filled with prophets and healers. And that blows me away until I start to think about how powerful it would be if we radically would love each other. Like how much forgiveness could happen, how much reconciliation or restoration. How much more easy repentance would come to us when we loved one another strongly enough to be able to go and say, "Hey listen man, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was wrong and I want to make this right with you because I love you." Like I'm not talking about just squarely like love like, "Oh, everything goes, just forget about it all." We like to love to throw we love to throw the word love around in church. Just love everybody. We do need to love everybody, but sometimes love is hard if we're honest. Because sometimes love means repentance, or sacrifice, Sometimes love means we suffer with or for each other. Like if I just look at Jesus, I mean, he's the embodiment of love, and he's constantly, constantly bearing our sufferings, right? So, a church that had that one thing packed away would be better than a church that had these spectacular, star-struck gifts. And this is what I need us to know, Carterville. 2,000 years ago, the world was filled with religious people. Today, Petal, Mississippi is filled with religious people. Some of those religious people followed the Pharisees, the chief priests, and they crucified Jesus. But they would say that they loved God. And they would say they loved people. But now they would also say, hey, could you draw some boundaries? Like, do I have to love Samaritans? Nope. Do I have to love Gentiles? Nope. Who is my neighbor? I need to, like, qualify this. And then there was a different group of people who followed Jesus. And their lesson in love came from watching Jesus for three years. To see what it meant to go and touch lepers even if other people spoke badly about your reputation, to eat with tax collectors and sinners, to see what it meant to give your life on a cross, to be mocked or ridiculed, to have powerful forces opposed you, to call people to be your followers that nobody else might have picked. They got a crash course in love by watching Jesus for a couple of years, and it meant that they looked entirely differently than the Pharisees. And I'm trying to figure out... How to summarize that to the church, because that's what I want from us, right? I know that everybody in pedal, when we walk out today, everybody is going to say, oh, I love God and I love my neighbor. Everybody's going to say it. And so what I'm trying to get my mind around in this sermon is, like, what does it look like to do it? What does it look like? How is it different, right? How is Jesus doing something differently than the Pharisees? And this is what struck me, right? This is what I want you to go home with. I want you to two words. Two words, and and I'll explain in a minute, two words. Love does, D-O-E-S. Everybody in the first century Mediterranean world could say, I love God. What is the difference? If you follow Jesus around, the difference is this, love does stuff. How many like husbands and wives in the room, you know, you're in one of those marriages, don't raise your hand, don't point your husband, you're in one of those uh, relationships, one of those marriages where, you know, the wife looks at the husband and says, hey baby, I love you, and he says, ditto baby, or he says, I, you know, thank you baby, and you look and you say, sweetheart, you never tell me you love me anymore, and he looks up and says, sweetheart, do you remember that day we stood on the altar at Cardville Baptist Church and Leland Hogan married us 37 years ago, and I... Told you I loved you? Well, yes. If I ever change my mind, I will let you know. <laughs> you ever been in one of those marriages? I mean, not, that's not fun, right? I mean, I'm a words guy. I'm in a preacher, right? I am a words guy. You can ask my wife. It gets on her nerves how often I say, I love you, I love you. She's like, I know, please, drop it. You know, drop it. I tell now, unfortunately, my wife is not a, love, a a word person. Like, her love language is not words. So she's like, okay, thank you for telling me ten times today. I really appreciate that. Now, if you really love me, go take out the trash. And so what, what I have learned about love is this. You know, I like to, I like to love with words because I'm a words guy, right? But in our marriage, my wife is a quality time person. She's she's an active service person, which just it sets this sermon up really well. Just to kind of use my marriage a little bit, which is 21 years of marital bliss. I mean, I'm telling you, what I'm learning from our marriage is that, like, honestly, in the first century world, anybody could have said, "I love God" with their words. But at the end, and I think you should tell your spouse you love your spouse. I really I do. If you haven't said it in a while, please say it today. But I also think if you really mean it, it will translate into some legitimate actions. Like you'll do something, because love does. You'll do something. Like it, and so what I'm learning is that like, sometimes I love you comes to life with a broom in your hand. Right? Or if you filled up the gas tank on a real cold day so that she wouldn't have to tomorrow. Or if you took out the trash, at my house, it's my least favorite chore. I hate taking out the trash because our driveway is 100 miles long. So, like, I'll see y'all tomorrow. I'm going to take the trash out. <laughs> but what I'm learning is there's a difference in the Pharisees saying, oh, sure, I love God, and the people that follow Jesus around and actually learn to start loving people. And everybody in this church is going to say, "I oh, man, that was a great sermon because you just said, we like, just love everybody. But I'm asking you, really, like, check your heart. Are you loving people? I mean, are there roadblocks of racism or classism? Are there old wounds where you've been harmed or betrayed where you won't love an enemy because of what they said or did? And maybe you need a good Christian counsel on how to do that in a smart way and not hurt yourself in the future. But seriously, I'm asking, do you love one another? Because if we do, we'll stop gossiping about each other when we're not there. If we do, nobody will have to talk us into praying for each other or going to check on each other or trying to go the extra mile for somebody when they need it. Because that stuff just kind of happens when we really love one another. I think about this particular passage, Matthew 22, where what is the greatest command? And Jesus said, well, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second was just like it, love your neighbor. You know, Luke tells the exact same Story, But for Luke, he tells about a time this happened sooner. If you turn your Bibles really quickly to Luke chapter 10, let me show you Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus is talking to an expert in the law. Lonnie uh, Lonnie Young actually shared this for our deacon's devotion this morning. Our deacon's meeting, I just kind of chuckled. Because I thought some deacon's gonna think I didn't have anything to say and I made this up. But I wrote it down. It's right here. Lonnie, you did a terrific job this morning, by the way. Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm gonna translate that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That guy's saying in our language, what do I have to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do to be saved? And this is before the cross, and Jesus doesn't use the language of, you know, repent and come to the cross for salvation. Look what he tells him. He's just checking the guy's heart. He says, "Uh, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a guy who knew what to do. My question is, was this guy doing it? You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. And when he says you will live, he means like you will live in the age to come, eternal life. This is a sign that your heart's been changed. You'll love God and love your neighbor. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, uh, I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but I'm going to let you read it scan the next few verses i'm just going to give you just 15 seconds to scan the next few verses cuz i want you to know what passage in the bible flows from this i'll give you 15 seconds i'm going to ask you what passage is, it? It is the passage that we have nicknamed the good the good samaritan Which is what? It's love in action. Like it's Jesus saying, hey, what's the great, Jesus asked, what's the greatest command? So he sets this guy up and he says, oh, it's to love God and love people. Jesus says, right. And the guy says, I need a little help with this. And I preach sermons on the Good Samaritan. And this sermon is not all about the Good Samaritan. But what I need you to see today is that love does something. And the story of the Good Samaritan is about two guys that did nothing but went to church. A priest and a Levite who would have said, I love God with all my heart and I love my neighbor as myself. And yet when a guy needed a little bit of help, they just walked out of the way so they didn't, they didn't get slowed down or dirty. And a third guy, barely religious according to them, he probably was very religious, but in the eyes of these Jewish people, he was going to the wrong church for sure. A Samaritan guy stops and helps him like tends to his wounds, gets his hands bloody, puts him on his donkey and has to walk, takes him to the end and says, here's my money, take care of him, I'll come check later. If you need some more, I'll pay the rest of it, just take care of the guy. That's what love looks like because love takes out the trash. Love says, I'm sorry. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. Love goes to a cross, love touches lepers, love helps a hurt man, love does stuff. And so when we say, I love you, well, that's terrific. Do you sacrifice for me? Do you prioritize me? Do you care for me? Is your heart bent towards me? Or do you gossip around me? Or do you secretly judge me? So I just, when I I knew I was going to preach a sermon about love, and I thought, oh, man, how do I make sure that I don't go in there and say, y'all, let's just love everybody. High fives for Jesus. I thought I needed to make it clear, and I don't know that if I have, That it is easy for religious people to say, I love God, and then walk out of church as mean as a snake. Like we've done it for 2,000 years. Like the most religious man in the Gospels, the high priest, killed Jesus. And so I just thought it would be really important for me to say today that I want us to love God and love our neighbor, but I think it has to be a little different than just saying it. 1 John 3:17 says that if, if a person says they love God, right? But they have the, me, the means to help a Christian brother in need, but they don't, love of God's not in them. Jesus in John 14 says, listen, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Love does stuff. Do you hear me? All right, so this is what I'm asking you to do today. Instead of everybody walking out of the church, high-fiving each other going, yeah, that's a good sermon. I surely love God. I just want to ask you, man, today would you really weigh your heart? Would you ask Jesus to search your heart and ask him if you really love him with all your heart? Or if you fall into a place where you love your name, or like in Luke 16, it says the Pharisees loved money. In Matthew 6, Jesus said you can't serve God and money. You're gonna love one, hate the other. Maybe you fall into a spot where you love stuff or possessions or wealth or fame or popularity or sports or whatever. And something has gotten the spot that God earns in your heart. And as a result, you can't love God, you can't love people. Anyway, I just I want us to do our business with God today. And so if you're in one of those spots where you're not loving God with your whole heart, would you just invite him to fix that today? Would you ask God, would you pray and ask God to fix my heart and teach me to love again? If you look up today and you realize that you're not loving people the way that Jesus taught us to, you wouldn't have talked to the demoniac, you wouldn't have touched the leper, you wouldn't have eaten with the tax collector, you wouldn't have stopped and spoken with the Samaritan woman. If you're looking up today and you're realizing you're not loving people the way God wants you to love people, would you just ask Him? Would you ask Him to transform your heart and watch and see if the Holy Spirit, under the Lordship of Jesus, can transform your heart and my heart until we don't have to force ourselves to love, until we love like Jesus loves. That's what I want. And I have an idea. Yet, if we had a church that was like that, 24-7, 365, it would change more lives in this city than we could shake a stick at. Not just by high-fiving and hugging and feeling good, but by a sacrificial, servant kind of love. Now, I'm telling you this. When Jesus asked us to love this way, he led the way. Like, his love, for God so loved the world... he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish, would have everlasting life. If you think it's hard to take out the trash to love your wife, it's going to be much harder than that to bear with each other to show love, to forgive each other to show love, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy. I'm asking you, are you up for it? Would you let God teach you to love? Jesus died for you out of love. Father, today it is my joy to invite sisters and brothers to give their lives to you for the first time. So God, if there's anybody here today that knows you by name, but they've never given their life to you, they've never never asked for your forgiveness, your salvation, they've never become a believer, then I pray, God, that today would be the day of their salvation. I pray, Lord, that today someone would give their life to Christ and be saved. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts, transform us. Lord, that you would shape us and change us. God, that the years we have left, that we would spend them loving one another as you have loved us. I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'll be down here. If there's anybody today that wants to ask Christ for salvation or take your next step with Jesus, I'd love to hear about it. Scouts, church, the altars are open. If anybody wants to come and just kneel right here and pray that God would change your heart, come pray with your church family. But let's God, let God have His way in you. Let's stand.